Amen. And with that last verse, we have a line right from the passage we will look at this morning. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, the end of Romans, Romans 14 through 15, verse 7. You'll find Romans right after Acts, and we are just pausing our series through Acts for a couple of weeks for some couple of focuses here in Romans and 1 Corinthians. And you'll find Romans between Acts and 1 Corinthians. We'll look at chapters 14 through 15, verse 7. Beginning in Romans 14, verse 1, it is written, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know... And am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we consider this word together. Our Father, what joy and assurance to know that you welcome all who trust your Son. You have brought them into the fellowship you have had within yourself as Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity. Our Father, we pray that the same love that has been cast upon us who have been justified by faith through the death and resurrection of Jesus would be reflected in our lives of response and welcome and hospitality and fellowship with one another. We pray that you would help us understand and carefully consider this portion of your word this morning, that you truly might be glorified as your church welcomes one another. Help us to hear with hearts of faith and understanding. Be with the one expounding your word. Your spirit might join this means of grace in preaching your word to convict and comfort to exalt your son and build his church. We ask this, our God, in his great and holy name. Amen. In this house, we believe, you probably already know I'm referring to those signs that are now littered through neighborhoods and windows and lawns. They're helpful insights and indicators into our wider culture. They usually continue with something of slogans like this, love is love, science is real, kindness is everything. These signs are helpful for us in at least two ways. The first is that they remind us that everyone wants unity. Everyone wants it. Society, community, togetherness, it's a basic human universal longing. Because God made us to be fruitful and multiply. And the first time he said it was nothing, something wasn't good was when man was alone. We were made to be together. But these signs are insightful in a second way also because we know that the unity called for by these signs isn't real. Such phrases we know, if we're paying attention at all, they're not open to their interpretation, are they? They have a definite intention. There's a specific understanding, even demand, of what love and science and kindness mean. And often people put these signs on their lawn to build walls between them and their neighbors, not bridges. Everyone wants unity, but almost no one has the willingness to achieve it. What about us in the church of Jesus Christ? Do we have any alternatives to the attempts that the world makes at unity, our God-given longings? We know, I hope, we do, 
And in fact, we are the church in many ways to demonstrate it. It's right here at the end of the book of Romans. But if we're going to understand these chapters, we're going to have to grasp something of its depth and understand it properly. The situation in Rome in the first century that the Apostle Paul was originally writing into was the tension and hostility and distance between Christians of Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. How could these two very different peoples live as one in Christ? It may not be acute for us today, but it's the oldest separation in humanity. God made us all that all humanity might know him, might live in his garden temple, and might exalt his name eternally forever. But instead, our first parents, Adam and Eve, sought themselves and not God, and plunged us all into sin that has created all the separation and hatred and animosity and violence that we're all too familiar with. But God was faithful to his promises He called Abraham and promised to bless the world through his line, and from his line came forth Israel. And Israel was to be the nation that was to be the light to the nations. And instead, the resounding refrain of the Old Testament is Israel was no different from the nations. But even worse, their privilege and their calling became a source of arrogance and presumption. And instead of reaching the Gentiles, they derided them as those dogs those who were not as exalted as them. How could humanity then ever be one again? Enter the gospel of Jesus, expounded so majestically by Paul in the book of Romans. You remember the thesis statement of this book in chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. But it doesn't end there, does it? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. At the very beginning of this letter, the Apostle Paul is acutely aware that he is addressing the implications of the gospel to two main groups of people. Groups of people that don't normally belong together, but yet have been called and made one man in Christ. And the book of Romans is even structured deliberately by Paul to address the presumption and the animosity between Jew and Gentile at the beginning and the end. So he launches in chapter 2 to describe the self-righteous presumption of Jews as Paul talks about those who judge others but fail to judge themselves. That section ends in chapter 3, verse 20, that everyone is accountable to God. The whole world is shut up before God as sinners, Jew and Gentile. And then he unpacks wonderfully in the body of the letter that Jew or Gentile, the only hope for righteousness is Jesus Christ and faith in Him. Righteousness cannot be achieved by any person on the planet. It must be declared because only Jesus Christ has lived a perfectly righteous life. He laid that life down on the cross to be our propitiation and rose again to be our justification. That is to be declared right by faith alone. And that is the thrust of the book of Romans. And it continues that all of this has come by God's sovereign grace and it compels us as Paul transitions in chapter 12 to respond to the sovereign love of God with lives of love to him and to others. 
And then Paul returns then at the end of this letter back to where he began. The presumption and animosity between Jew and Gentile. How Jewish and Gentile Christians despise or judge one another. That's the main burden of these, of these section, And we know that because he returns in chapter 8 to talk about the promises of God to bring the deepest divide in humanity together. If you just scan over chapter verse 8 through verse 13 in chapter 15, Paul cites three citations from the Old Testament and he deliberately does it from the law and the prophets and the Psalms. That is, in the traditional Hebrew categorization of the Old Testament, Paul is embracing the whole Old Testament and said the whole point is this. All of the promises of God that were laid down centuries before, beloved, were for this. That Christ would bring together all humanity in himself. God is remaking humanity in his Son. A whole new humanity. Those who are in Christ are a new people. A new human race. This is, again, something of the magnitude has evaporated over time. But it is a sign for us that as God has bridged the greatest divide in human existence, then every other divide must be fall as well in Christ. That's the great burden of this section. Because the weak and the strong here in Romans 14 and 15 are referring to the Jewish background and Gentile background Christians and how they accept one another in one congregation. How do they live together? We want to say at the outset that there's probably no situation among us today that exactly approximates what is going on here between the weak and the strong. We cannot make any hasty associations. Often you'll hear these interpretations and applications of these chapters that do that very thing. And often sometimes it's referred to issues like maybe drinking alcohol. And the weak are those who cannot control themselves. They're, they're weak in being able to have self-control with something like alcohol. And the strong have to take care that they don't encourage the weak to drink because they can't control themselves. And they don't want to make them stumble, or you don't want to cause them emotional pain or hurt. Or you could apply it to all sorts of things. Styles of congregational music, lifestyle decisions, what kind of movies you watch or don't. But, but all of these categories are, are not comparable at all to what was going on in the first century. Not even close. The weak were Christians of Jewish background who had con- who were in Judaism, were unsure, unpersuaded, not yet convinced that in Christ, they no longer had to follow their ceremonial traditions. Now just imagine it. You're a Jew in Rome for centuries. Every every background ancestor you know followed ritual requirements to establish your identity in pagan Rome. Things like the food you ate, the cleanliness of foods, or the festivals and the time and the calendar you kept. That's why we see here that the the weak struggle with clean and unclean foods. Or in verse 2, Paul refers to the weak person eating only vegetables. Because in Rome, you couldn't order a steak and know whether or not it had been sacrificed to a pagan god. So you would just have to pick a vegetarian diet if you were to avoid anything unclean. 
And of course, they've been accustomed to the Jewish Sabbath, Saturday and Holy Days and the feast days. So when they're setting the church calendar, it's just normal for them. We're, we're still doing this too, right? I mean, we've done this for centuries. The weak here aren't those who are simply easily offended or lack self-control. They're not persuaded that they can quit Judaism's calendar or menu without dishonoring the Lord. That's why Paul's concerned about forcing them to prematurely to cause them to stumble. To stumble is not to get irritated. To stumble is to fall away from Christ. To stumble is to reject him. Paul's concerned that if you force the weak before they're persuaded, as he says in verse 15 of chapter 14, you will destroy the one for whom Christ died. Because if in their mind they're thinking, you are causing me to dishonor the Lord, well then that must mean the gospel is not from the Lord. And that must mean, therefore, I must reject this. And then, verse 16 of chapter 14, the gospel would be derided publicly as evil. As Jewish background uh, professors fall away and reject it. So that's the weak. That means then the strong are those like Paul who have a mature understanding of the gospel. They know Christ has fulfilled the ritual requirements of the law. There's, there's nothing unclean, as Christ said in his own ministry. As was revealed, we saw in Acts chapter 10 to the Apostle Peter as he met Cornelius through a vision. There's nothing unclean. The ceremonial traditions of Judaism are no longer how God distinguishes his people. It is, in fact, just before our passage in chapter 13, God's people are now distinguished by how they walk in love according to his moral law. That they walk in love and owe no man anything except the debt of love. And the end of chapter 13, that they put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Christ is our separation. Christ is what sets us apart. Have a steak. Celebrate Hanukkah. Or not. But it's immaterial. Christ is our separation in the world. These are the issues that Paul's dealing with, and you can see already how it's hard to think of any direct application today unless you're talking about Jewish evangelism. Christians disagreeing over whether or not you can have a beer aren't worried about being ceremonially unclean and dishonoring the Lord. They're making wisdom decisions, prudence decisions, but it's not of this gravity. It's not of this significance. So for us, the burden of this passage is the great importance of the visible unity of the church. As it begins and ends in 14.1 and 15.7, welcome one another. Welcome. That is, bring into fellowship. Show hospitality. It's more than a wave. It's a reception as family members. Welcome and accept each other as he ends in verse 7 of chapter 15, because Christ has welcomed you. Live in such harmony that God is glorified and the witness to the gospel is shown in your pagan city as you've all been welcomed by God. The burden and the result of the book of Romans is that by the power of God, faith has been birthed in all sorts of people. You have in the church former idolaters and former Pharisees. And they both call each other brother and sister. Who before they came to Christ would have hated one another and had nothing to do with each other. 
And they're now one in Christ. Both are justified by faith. Both are united to Christ by the power of the Spirit. Both have the hope of being with Him forever. Both are called to walk in love according to God's moral law, even though their backgrounds, their status, even their ethnicities, their perspectives on the world would have been radically different and had nothing in common. How are they to unite as a church? How are they to serve as a witness to how God is fixing the world through His Son Jesus and making a new humanity? How is He making us have one voice despite all our differences and disagreements and even different convictions about the gospel and the implications of it? That's the point of these chapters. That's the great significance. If Christ has welcomed you and other Christians at the cost of His own blood, how can we refuse to welcome and love one another? How can we refuse not to share in hospitality one another? Or another way to ask it, if the gospel is true, then how should two Christians who both say they believe it treat each other? How does it work itself out despite our differences? And what we see in this portion of God's word is the Holy Spirit says we live in unity by accepting one another in Christ and conforming our lives to the gospel of Jesus. This whole section you could reduce down simply to applying the gospel to the relationships between Christians. Or we might want to look at this passage and frame it in this way. What do we give to one another in Christ? What are we called to give? And I want to notice three big gifts in these chapters that we give to one another. The first in verses 1 to 12, we give fellowship in Christ. Fellowship. In verses 13 to 23 of chapter 14, we give time and teaching to grow. We give one another the time and the teaching to grow. And then in chapter 15, verses 1 to 7, we give glory to Christ for one another. We give glory to Christ. Well, let's walk through these things, and Lord willing, I won't tip over during this uh, sermon. If I do, just if a deacon would come push me right back and we'll dust me off and we'll keep going. Let's look at verses 1 to 12 of chapter 14. We give fellowship in Christ. What do we give to one another? First, fellowship. Paul starts these chapters here in verse 14. Even though one is weak in faith, welcome him, receive him, accept him into sincere fellowship. The idea of welcome includes hospitality, genuineness, sincerity, and sharing in Christ. And Paul says it very clear at the end of verse 1, it's not to be a pretext to quarrel. You know, where you're glad someone's come over so you can nail them. You saw what he posted last week. I've been waiting all day to answer to that, right? Bring him in. Don't Bring somebody into quarrel with one another or pressuring someone to agree with you right away over your opinions. And Paul lays out in verse 3, and certainly no one is to despise or pass judgment on one another. And he's referring both to the weak and the strong. The weak aren't to judge, the strong aren't to despise or look down their nose on. Now by weak in faith, what Paul means by that, as we see in the context of these chapters, is weak in grasping the implications of the gospel. Or we might call it an immature understanding of the gospel. It's an immature grasp of the consequences of what Christ has done for our lives and what they mean. True Christian, we're not dealing with heretics here, 
talking about true Christians that have yet a weak grasp on the implications of the gospel. And you see this as Paul refers throughout these chapters to things like opinions. Or significantly, the end of verse 5 of chapter 14, one's persuasion in one's mind, what one's persuaded or convinced of. Or in verse 22, what one approves, what one thinks. So to be weak in faith is to be unconvinced, to be not yet persuaded, to not yet fully understand what the gospel meant for the ritual requirements of Judaism and the Jewish calendar, to not have fully worked it all out. These Christians are Christians who are immature. They're unconvinced. But despite all of that, what is the reality of their standing in the church? Verse 3, God has welcomed him. He's fully a member of Christ's church. He's fully joined to Christ, even though he has not yet worked out all that his salvation in Christ means. And he begins then in verse 4 to refer to one another as servants. And significantly here, Paul uses the language of a household servant, the servant of another. Paul takes the great metaphor we see throughout the Bible that the church is the household of God. And he refers in this familial implications, referring to the servants of another master. Servants in the same household don't rule each other. The master's in charge. So Paul's asking this question here, who who are you to take the role of the master of the house? Who's in charge of this house? It's the Lord's. Now, of course, just dropping a footnote here, elsewhere in the scriptures we see that the church is called to judge. But the church is called to judge through the process we call church discipline. It's a corporate process. It's a long process. There's steps and stages set out most notably in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2. And essentially, Paul is referring to things that don't fall under that process. And we might even say, if the church corporately has not rendered an ecclesiastical decision then Christians aren't to take that prerogative to themselves individually. Christians individually aren't to take and wrap up the process of church discipline and hold it privately and execute judgment. So Paul here has the idea of doing that individually. And also, there's a sense of a a badgering or a dismissal of one's brother or sister. The language of quarreling. It's a marginalizing and a personal condemnation over matters that aren't sin. Immaturity, yes. Sin, no. Now think of how the gospel is to be applied here. Who is the one that we found out in chapter 8 of Romans has predestined all he foreknew to be conformed to the image of his son? Who has called and justified and will certainly glorify all whom he's predestined? God. So Paul summarizes it practically there in verse 4. God is able to make him stand. All that we said in chapter 8 applies to your brother. He is justified and called just like you. He will be glorified, so trust God with your brother or your sister. We see here how the need to push or command uniformity on any number of matters is essentially a failure to believe in the power of God as he's revealed in his word. Why quarrel over opinions unless you secretly think, even unconsciously, that God's not able to make him stand? And have anxiety over a brother or sister that we've got to get them to get this now or they may not make it. 
And Paul's saying clearly, that's not your job. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, has a significant role in the church. And you don't need to fill it for Him. How will the Lord do His sanctifying work in this life? Note significantly the second sentence of verse 5. This is a principle that Paul will continue to unwind through these chapters. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Our God works through our minds. That's why he's given us his word. Christianity is about returning to your senses, not losing them. And so each one is to be convinced in his own mind. And that principle, that goal, that object of discipleship, if you will, of learning, he sets out as the principle to understand. Now, as he goes on, he gives the example of Jewish holy days. And these verses here, just briefly, are often wrongly used by Christians as to refer to the church's gathering on the Lord's day as though it might be a matter of indifference. But this is taking, again, this section out of context. The debate there was not whether or not the church gathered on the Lord's day on Sundays. The debate was whether you kept the Jewish calendar. That including with gathering on Sunday, did you do something Saturday? And is it Christmas or Hanukkah? I know that's anachronistic. Christmas didn't exist. Hanukkah did, though. Hanukkah is more biblical than Christmas, but we'll talk about that later. These are about conflicts over Jewish ritual, over Sabbaths and festivals, Passover. What do you do with Passover? When you have Jews and Gentiles in the church together, the Jewish Christian, Paul says, he observes Passover in verse 6. He does it in honor of the Lord. And the, the strong Christian who doesn't observe Passover because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, he, observed, he doesn't observe it in honor of the Lord. He's rejoicing that Christ has come and is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul says, whatever you do with Passover, as long as you do it unto the Lord, we are, as he says in verses 7 to 9, we're the Lord's. Different understandings, different convictions. But How's that? Have you heard the one about the preacher who ran out of batteries halfway through the sermon? <laughs> do, you know what it means, do you know what it means when the preacher looks at his watch halfway through the sermon? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> we saw the main goal, what unites 
the weak and the strong Christians in verse 8 is that they are the Lord's. And this is the common ground, as Paul lays out here, that unites differing perspectives. Christians could even share their meals together, one with the veggies and one with the tri-tip, because they're both convinced it's in honor of the Lord. Why can't we all just get along? Because by nature, we all want to live for ourselves. That's why. And that's what the Bible says. This is the basic root of the sin we all share, even though it shows up in our lives in radically different ways. We all live for ourselves. We live basically in a world we did not make, in a life we do not sustain, but instead of honoring and thanking our Creator, we want it all to revolve around us. We want to define right and wrong. We want to define our position over others. And we are, as one writer deftly put it, we are prisoners of our own independence. But Christ, as Paul expands in verse 9, Christ has died and risen. He suffered our judgment and risen as our Savior so that we live for who? For Him. And that's true whether you're weak or strong. You live for Christ. That's true for every Christian in this life and in death. And it can be true for anyone who would trust the Lord Jesus Christ and rely upon him alone. Even you this morning, if that does not currently describe you, it can. You can trust the Lord regardless of your background. There are no prerequisites to coming to Christ except knowing your need of him and trusting him. And it's also true, as Paul goes on in verse 10, we are united to Christ and we will stand before the judgment seat. And what claim are the weak and the strong going to make at the judgment seat before Christ? Well, I kept and ate veggies, or I didn't and enjoyed my liberties? No, the only claim that anyone will make is I'm Christ. His righteousness alone satisfies for me. His death forgives my sins. And you see what Paul is doing here so marvelously for us. He's getting Christians to look at the past, at the cross, And how is the ground at the foot of the cross? It's level. Because we all need it. And he gets us to look forward to the judgment seat. And how is the ground before the judgment seat of Christ? It's level. Because none of us can presume to be above another before the all-searching holy judgment of God. And so Paul is saying here, if you both rely in the past on the cross of Christ, if you both look to the future and relying on Christ before His judgment seat, then how should you live together this afternoon? With those ends in view. Before the Lord, you stand in Christ. Our world is absorbed today in cancel culture. You know about that, I know. People lose their influence. People lose their careers because of something they said. Sometimes really dumb things. But they may have said them years ago. Cancel culture now has a global platform because of online media, but it's not new. People have been canceling each other for millennia since Cain killed Abel. And it remains an issue for the church that we would welcome and not cancel one another and not welcome to fight. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, we know the temptation we have with remaining sin, even with our own fellowship. Even sometimes, isn't it ironic how what is called fellowship time can really be reduced to faction time? And Christians welcome each other, and sometimes within the first 10 minutes of even meeting one another, views and opinions are being interrogated on schooling, parenting philosophies. Do you like this 
preacher or dislike him? Or of course, should we bring up, has anyone noticed there's different opinion over COVID-19 and public health policies? I don't know about you, I've, I've kind of noticed that. But that's not fellowship. That's not encouragement in Christ. It's establishing factions by convictions. Not on insignificant things or unimportant things, but not ultimate things. And it's ultimately, we see here, driven by an anxiety that there may somewhere be a Christian who disagrees with me. Perish the thought. There are those who are fully justified like me, but are wrong. How does that work? By the same grace that justifies you and I. That's how it works. And that Christ calls us equally to Himself. We're warned here against creating unity by conformity to our views instead of conforming to Christ. Of course, there's many things to be frustrated over in our current situation. But one of, I think, the benefits as a pastor has been to our outdoor meetings and these kinds of things, even though there's much I would prefer weren't like this, is that some of the formality has been removed. I've even preached in shorts and a t-shirt. One person newer among us made a comment and noticed that I actually have a tattoo on my leg. I said, yeah, I might have more. (laughs) I actually used to play guitar in a punk band. And I still listen to it. And they were astonished. And their comment, I love it. Wow, you're like a real person. (laughs) It may shock you to know I was not born with a copy of a confession in my hand. Yeah, I'm exactly right. I'm like a real person. You know what? We're all like real people. And the great wonder of the gospel is that Christ saves like real people, all kinds of people, all kinds of people that understand and don't understand so many things, but sometimes we forget that. We forget that the gospel is for all people, for real people. Christ saves real people who are really rescued by God in Christ. And the issue that he is pressing here upon us is our fellowship ought never forget that. That real people, sometimes without their ideas and things haven't come together, but still fully in Jesus and justified by the same grace as you and I. We ought not ever forget that and conjole or pressure others to absolute agreement. Christ saves and he can be trusted to sanctify real people. So we first give one another fellowship. Secondly, the rest of the balance of Romans 14 We give one another time and teaching to grow. Time and teaching. If we were to end right here at verse 12, we might ask, does the church now have to be set to the lowest common denominator? We now have to to pivot now to the least mature in the church? No. No, Paul gives us a hint there in verse 5 when he says each one must be fully convinced. And notice how he reiterates the principle in verse 14. I know and I am persuaded. So Paul's setting the goal and the target. What he's applying though is that people need time to get there. They need time and teaching to be informed, to have their conscience educated. Now Paul doesn't use the word conscience in these chapters. He does elsewhere and he's assuming the biblical teaching here. 
But conscience is that part of us that tells us what's right or wrong, what's pleasing or displeasing to the Lord. The weak in their conscience are still convinced that there are clean and unclean foods before God. So if he violates that conviction, that conscience, conscientiously, right, he rebels against God. Because that's what his conscience is telling him is happening, is that he's rebelling against the Lord. So that's why Paul says in verse 14, it is unclean if he's convinced of it. Because his conscience is telling him so. So conscientiously what he's doing is sinning. And to conscientiously sin is sin. And so he warns in verse 13, don't ever put a stumbling block in the way of a brother. That is, don't ever push them to what they believe is defiling before the Lord. That might lead them to abandon the faith because the true faith wouldn't lead me to sin against God. By using this word stumbling, I believe Paul is pulling from Jesus' own teaching in Matthew 18. His warning about those who causes any of his little ones to stumble. The ESV has sin, but there's a footnote, it's stumbling. It's the same word. He said, Jesus says, it's better to have a millstone around your neck and be thrown in the ocean than to cause a brother or sister to turn from him, away from their only hope of life. And so very practically and publicly, what this meant for the Romans is what you ate. Consider lunch after church one Sunday morning. Mr. Strong invites Mr. Weak out for lunch. He lays a steak before him. It's likely not clean. Mr. Strong doesn't care because he knows there's nothing to idolatry and Christ has cleansed everything. But Mr. Weak thinks it's unclean. And to be honest, Mr. Weak wants to be in the good graces of Mr. Strong. He wants to be welcomed. So if Mr. Strong puts pressure, come on, it's fine, eat the steak. What are you worried about? Then Mr. Weak is now deciding, not about the implications of the gospel, he's deciding whether he follows God or man, Mr. Strong. And if he gives in in his conscience, what he's done internally is put Mr. Strong above his Savior, and that's sin. And so what will be the result in verse 15 is he'll be grieved by what is eaten. And he can be grieved to, at the risk of being destroyed spiritually. If Mr. Weak doesn't seek help or get instruction, he could reject Christ and return to Judaism because Christians caused him to sin. This can't be of the Lord. This can't be consistent with our Scriptures. And then what will he say of the gospel? In verse 16, he'll speak of it as evil. And instead of having a visible testimony of how God is uniting humanity in the church, it will be a testimony of derision and stigma. As Paul says in verse 15, this is not walking in love. Now he goes on and he of course anticipates the natural objection that any of us would have. Why do I have to skip this tri-tip because Mr. Wheat can't get it together and realize the meaning of the gospel. I mean, why am I held up? Because of him. And then we have in verse 17, which if it's not, should be scored, marked, or highlighted in your Bible. There's a magnificent truth to meditate on. Because the kingdom of God, that is God's reign over his people, God justifying us by declaration through faith in Christ, uniting us to His Son by His Spirit, His reign, it's not about eating and drinking. Did we come to Christ? Do we know His grace? 
so that we could eat or drink whatever we want? Imagine making the marriage covenant and then telling your wife as a husband, you know what I'm so glad about marrying you? Is that your dinners are pretty good. That's just, that's, that's the tops. Now think of the significance of saying such a thing to the Holy Creator who's called you from before the foundation of the world. The great thing about being a Christian is that I can have an IPA on Saturdays. That's why I love Jesus. Of course, it's absurd. And that's what Paul's pointing out. The kingdom of God, is, it's not about eating and drinking. What's it about? We know what it's about. It's about righteousness and peace and joy. And what Paul is doing is he's getting us to remember what he said in chapter 5, the pivotal text in Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified, made righteous by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and what? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, he's just pulling it all together here. Righteousness, peace, joy. The results of the gospel. Why do we love Jesus? Why do we praise His name? Because in Him and Him alone, we have righteousness before God. Peace with Him forever and the joy of eternal hope. That's what this is about. So Paul essentially says, what are you worried about what you have for lunch for? Who cares? The great good of the gospel is we have peace with God. So, verse 18, serve Christ. Serve Him. Give up your rights. Don't grieve your brother. The pursuit of the Christian, verse 19, isn't your rights. It's upbuilding and edifying your brother's. And in verse 20, you can feel Paul's sense of proportion coming out. Don't, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Over food. Don't destroy the work of God. The weak are wrong. They're not right. But you know what the greater wrong is? It's to make a brother stumble because they're wrong to take their immaturity and make it a curse upon them and to push them away. Now Paul addresses the strong and weak respectively at the end of chapter 14. The strong are to have their faith between yourself and God. Paul's not saying here, don't evangelize or keep your faith a secret. He's saying your convictions you can enjoy without badgering your brother and sister. You can give them time. You know, it doesn't have to be a thing. Essentially, if you're going to make a really crass paraphrase, don't make it a thing in your fellowship where you always have to talk about this. Your conviction of what you know about the gospel and you know your brother has it wrong, give him time. Let him get taught. Don't make it a thing. Love him. Accept him. You know how we can have a thing, even as Christians. Preachers have things. Hobby horses. Don't do that. Don't bring judgment for ruining other Christians. And then to the weak in verse 23, a reminder that he can't persist with his doubts. He can't act against his conscience. It's sin. In other words, the, the implication of the end of chapter 20, verse 23 is educate your conscience. You need to understand. Hey, if you know your Christian brothers and sisters are enjoying tri-tip on Saturday and you're not sure that's acceptable then I encourage you to figure that out. I encourage you to grow 
to educate your conscience. You see here, and we shouldn't confuse the call to unity in these chapters as simply just agreeing to disagree. You notice even what Paul's doing here publicly in this letter. The book of Romans, like all of Paul's letters, would have been read publicly to the church. Now imagine you're Mr. Weak here and hearing this read. I know and am persuaded. Nothing's unclean. Paul says, and he'll even say in chapter 15, verse 1, we have to bear with the failings of the weak. You imagine if you're really strong and you've posted on Facebook this week a lot of things about how the weak are right and the apostle writes a letter and says you have failings and you're wrong? Oh, I have some things to reconsider. Paul's not being shy about exposing immaturity or exhorting folks to grow. But he's dead set that they have to be sincerely convinced on the basis of the word of God and not be pressured because of fear of man. That's the issue. They need teaching and time. We all need to be taught. And we're called in Scripture to teach and exhort. This is how Jesus rules His church. Our confession in chapter 26, paragraph 5, the Lord Jesus calls out of the world unto Himself by His Word and Spirit. God works through His Spirit and Word. We're to be transformed by the renewal of what? Our minds. Essentially, the notice put to the weak here is you need to reform your mind. It needs to be transformed by the Word of God. Growing, being taught prayerfully under the ministry of the Word. So, essentially, do the weak need peer pressure? No, they need preaching. They need discipleship. They need exhortation. They need encouragement to grow. And it's a reminder for the whole church to be teachable. There's no virtue in saying as a Christian, I've never changed my opinions on anything. That's not a Christian virtue. We don't aspire to be stubborn. We aspire to be taught and to grow that our faith is in need of nurture and understanding. And if Christians have to be taught, then that means Christians need what? Time. They need time. You see, God grows His children spiritually the same way that our children grow physically in wisdom and stature, with a lot of work and a lot of time and patience. Sometimes we forget this. Sometimes when I'm speaking and I'm aware that I'm in a place where people are unfamiliar with the Scriptures, I'll make what it will assume to many of us to be obvious statements. Like that chapters are the big numbers and verses are the little numbers. You'll want to notice that as I preach. I've mentioned that before in certain gatherings and the Christians there laugh. They laugh. Sometimes Christians forget there was a time when they didn't know which gospel went before which one. Or that Psalms is not in the New Testament even though Gideon's hands it out with it. It's actually in the Old. But do you remember when you didn't know those things? Do you remember when you knew nothing except Jesus is the Savior? And Paul's reminding us to give time and patience. In the Reformed traditions, we sometimes get confused because of our robust and excellent doctrinal standards. And we forget that none of those standards are downloaded into someone's mind instantly. It takes time. They're aspirational, not automatic. They are the goal of understanding that everyone grasps, but we aren't to assume that everyone will grasp them at the same time 
in the same place. We know that's not true. A culture of patience in a church would mean that people can say wrong things, act in immature ways, and they're not jumped on. They're led and they're taught. And sometimes they're just given room to grow because that's what young Christians say and do. The posture of our Bibles that we are to have before our brothers and sisters is with it open in explanation and not shut and waving and why are you such a moron you don't get this yet. It's open and exhorting and teaching and patience. If we fail in this area as a church and don't cultivate a culture of patience and discipleship, if the culture of a church, of any church, becomes one of impatience and pressure, do you know what happens? The church of Jesus becomes a cult of personality and preference, and everyone nods their head to the right answers because they know they can't say anything wrong, and they get assassinated for it. And fellowship is rooted in that we all know that we do this or we do that. We all know this. And everyone we know who doesn't get it is second class and on the margins. And you know what happens in a culture like that? Who's been ushered out the back door is Jesus. He's been ushered out back. And some other personality has now taken headship over his church. No one then is in that context is actually relating or growing consciously in reference to the Lord. They're relating to this person, that personality, this philosophy, that church member, that pastor, but not Jesus. And the goal of discipleship and love for one another is that we grow up in Jesus and that whatever we do, even when we do it differently, we do it in honor of of him. That brings us thirdly and finally. We give glory to Christ for one another. We give glory to Christ for one another. And we conform ourselves, even in our relationships, to Jesus' call to discipleship. You remember Jesus' basic call to his disciples was deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And sometimes all of us, we forget that, that includes how we live together as one another in the church. Paul says you have an obligation, verse 1, to bear with the immature and not please ourselves. We've been saved by Christ to live as Christ, to live as he did, because Christ did not please himself. We're to honor him and live like him. He bore insults and reproach for becoming a man for our salvation. So we ought to as well to bear with our beloved brothers and sisters who just don't get it. Those who are slower or younger who have seen things differently to bear with them. Christ surrendered omnipotent strength for us. And so in united to him, we shouldn't be bothered to set aside our puny strength for others. That's what Paul prays as he prays in verse 5, that God would so work through his word the God of endurance, to empower us to live in love and harmony that's consistent with Christ Jesus. Living as Him, united as Him. Remembering how He dealt with His boneheaded disciples for years to bring them along, and He's still doing it today. And we're to join Him. In this way, 
As the church lives together, notice the refrains in verses 6 and 7. God is glorified. The Lord of the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is raised and held up in pagan Rome because Jews and Gentiles love each other and eat things different for lunch and yet both do it for the common Lord. That stands out. Nobody does that but the church. So therefore, look to how Christ has welcomed you and welcome one another, verse 7, for the glory of God. The resounding impact is that God would be exalted not because we all ate the same thing for lunch or did the same thing on Passover, but because we love Jesus even though we're different. God is glorified. The resounding impact of these chapters is to rebuke any privatized notion of the faith among us. Our faith is public and visible for the sake of the gospel moving forward, for the glory of God in Christ. And all the way back to when Christ was on earth, it's always been this way. Following Jesus has never been an individual experience even when Jesus was physically walking around the Sea of Galilee. When he called his disciples, he called his disciples to a band of disciples around him. And to this day, trusting Christ has always meant trusting him with others. Always. And in every one of Paul's letters, the visible unity of the church is of great concern, just as it is here. Because it was Jesus' great concern. The night he was betrayed, you remember the last command Jesus gave in John 13? By this all people will know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. And in his final prayer in John 17, his prayer for us that we may all be one, he prays to his Father, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus commanded unity, not just for unity's sake, because unity makes the gospel visible and notable and apparent. It gives plausibility to the invisible claims we make on the basis of the word to the world that's watching. And we have not even begun to consider the consequences of the gospel if we are not thinking about how we welcome and accept and fellowship with others who also trust and believe the gospel as we do. We respond to one another's immaturity and differences by putting on Christ and making no provision for the flesh in our lives. The great work of fellowship in the church starts in your heart and mine. I love what John Owen said as he wrote a great work on fellowship in the church. And one of the causes for it is daily, daily striking at the root of all division by laboring for absolute conformity to Jesus Christ. Unity and fellowship in the church begins by each Christian daily striking at the root of division in our hearts and laboring to be conformed to Jesus. And that's how Jesus is known in corporate unity with the church together striving to glorify him. During the rise of the Nazis, much of visible Christianity apostated and swore oaths to Hitler in Germany. 
So before the war, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and other men led training centers for what would be called the Confessing Church. That is the church that still confesses Christ and not Nazism. In their secret meetings, reflecting on them, Bonhoeffer wrote what is probably his greatest contribution to this day, Life Together. And in Life Together, he makes these observations. He says, The Christian cannot take for granted the privilege of living among other Christians. Let those who till now have had the privilege of living a Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of their hearts. The Lord has taught us this, hasn't he, recently? It's a privilege to live together. And what destroys Christian community? Well, he describes what it is by saying Christian community means community through and in Jesus Christ. Note this, we have one another only through Christ. But through Christ, we really have one another. And he goes on to say what destroys community then is those who want more. Those who want more than Christ. He says some have a wish, what he calls a wish dream of the ideal community. He writes this, those who want more than what Christ has established between us don't want Christian community. They are looking for some extraordinary experience of community. Those who dream of this ideal community demand it be fulfilled by God, by others. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, judges his brothers and God accordingly. That's not Christian community. Christian community, the church, is through and in Jesus Christ. We have one another only through Christ. But in Christ, we truly and eternally have one another. So live visibly like that is true and conform our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word that comes to us from such great distance and even in a context that we can't even by experience understand but yet strikes us with such relevance and necessity by the power of your Spirit. We ask that you might help us walk in what we have heard and understood from your Word. And we pray that you would give us by your Holy Spirit gracious patience and encouragement and instruction that we might all grow and be built up in your Son. We thank you, Father, for the unity that you have created and which we really see among us we ask that you would cause us to preserve it and even to extend it, that you might be glorified among us and in our world. We pray this, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.